0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning again. We want to praise God for uh, what took place at the Central Texas Men's Conference down at Camp Tejas. We had about 200 men, not just from TBC, but other churches in the area as well. They got to hear Tim Kimmel uh, speak. I have gone almost every year, and it's always a blessing. And many of our men, I think, are in journeying back to temple um, right now, if they haven't already. So um, let's continue to pray that, God, uh, we just see some really good fruit born out of what's happened this past weekend with our men and our families in our church. Uh, So we are continuing our series Rebuilding in Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is part three. And I've titled this sermon what not to do when discouraged. Now, I want to ask you a question to start off. How many of you all saw the 2017 film Dunkirk? Raise your hand. Now, how many of you all liked the film? All right. So, there's some difference there, a little bit. Uh, This is a story about of about 300,000 British troops being rescued from France as they were backed up by German forces against the sea. But the way the director tells the story is a little bit confusing and not traditional. Uh, He tells the same story from three different perspectives. It's air, land, and sea. And so the the movie's not real chronological and linear like most are. The plot jumps around quite a bit and uh, can be a little bit confusing. So today's passage in Ezra is a little bit like that. It's not chronological, and the timeline jumps around, and it's going to confuse you if you don't understand that. So I'll say more about this later on, but first, a quick recap. Last week, Chase shared on Ezra chapter 3, and he talked about how the Jews had returned back to Israel to rebuild the altar, and then they laid the foundation of the temple, and it's really a mixed occasion because there is sadness in the, younger, the older generation because they remember how things used to be. But there's joy with the younger, with the, with the younger generation uh, because they think this is all new to us. And so there's some mixture there in, in how they're all receiving that event in Ezra chapter 3. Now, chapter 4 shows us that sometimes spiritual victory is often followed by spiritual defeat. And it's, not, it's about how God's people have always experienced opposition and been tempted towards discouragement all throughout history. And uh, so here's the breakdown of Ezra chapter 4. And this is what I was talking about when I said that it's a confusing um, outline, but uh, verses 1 through 5 is in reference to Cyrus, who made the decree for them to return back to the land. And we see the date there of, of when this took place. And then verses uh, 6 is in reference to Xerxes, which is actually another name for him is Ahasuerus, which is the same person that Esther was married to in the book of, in the book of Esther. And, uh, and, then, and that, that flashes forward to a much future time um, in Israel's history. And then 7 to 23 is about Artaxerxes I, also about a future time. And then verse 24 goes back to the past again in relation to King Darius. And you see the dates listed there. Another way to think of this is that verses 1 through 5 is really about the temple, verses 6 to 23 is about the rebuilding of the, the walls in the city of Jerusalem, and then verse 24 is about the temple again. So it's like the writer has put this parentheses in the middle, and we'll say more about why he uses structure as we go through the chapter. So look with me at Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, it's too early to say that word, and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua And the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So, right away, we see something here where the writer calls these people that are offering to help build the temple, calls them adversaries. So, these people are not friends with Israel. And they are not to be trusted. But they approach Israel's leaders saying, hey, we see that you're going to build this temple to this God that you worship. We want you to know that we, we worship your God as well. So let us help you build your temple. But, the, but Israel's leaders reject the help saying, you will have nothing to do with us. Now, now why are they acting this way? You would think that they would want other groups to help them, right? In this huge undertaking of rebuilding the temple. We can find our answer over in 2 Kings chapter 17. You can turn there if you would like to. In 2 Kings chapter 17, in 721 BC, the 10 northern tribes of Israel were taken captive by this king listed here, Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. And in that time, when a king conquered the land, and disperse the people, they would send their own people back to that area and and repopulate the land so the land could be theirs and someone else couldn't take that land. Now, the Assyrians, they were idolaters and they worshiped many gods and they would import that into Israel. And so we see in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 25, where it says, when they first arrived, these people coming back to populate the land. They did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, that is, that is one way to get someone's attention, right? Now, if you or I were attacked by a lion, we would just say, I was attacked by a lion. It was a bad day at work, right? Right? But this is the ancient world, and if something bad happened, they would often conclude, I must have offended someone's God. This is just how they thought the world worked. And it says here, of course, that that's what God did do because of their idolatry. So these these pagan idolaters connect the dots and recognize, we were attacked because we don't understand how to worship this God. So the king of Assyria hears about that, hears about the lions, and he says, They must have offended Israel's God. So he sends a Jewish priest back to them to show them how to properly worship Israel's God. But here's the problem. They just added God, Yahweh, to a list of many gods. They didn't abandon their idols. We can see this down in verse 29 of this chapter of 2 Kings 17. But every nation still made gods of its own. So they just continued this idolatry. And then in verse 31, where it says, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech. So their idolatry, it leads to, to child sacrifice right there in northern Israel. And then in verse 33, it says, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away. Now, listen, if you're committing child sacrifice, are you really fearing God? No, you're not fearing God. So when they, when they said they worshiped God, they just added him to their list. Their theology was all about making sure they had their bases covered. Just, just to make sure we're, we're appeasing all the gods out there. If something bad happens to us, it's probably from one of the gods. Let's make sure we have that base covered too. You know, today, people... People typically believe in a God or no God. But in the ancient world, everyone believed in many gods. That's just what they did. Believing in one God would be strange. If you said, I only believe in one God, you'd be considered the odd person, the weirdo, the strange person. This is why early Christians were called, they were called atheists by the people around them in the early church. Because the Romans and the Greeks, they worshipped many gods. They had lots and lots of gods, lists of gods. And Christians or even Jews would say, we worship one god. They would say, well, you don't, you don't worship these gods that we worship? Well, if you worship one god, you might as well worship no god. They called them atheists because they didn't believe in any of their gods except for the one god that Christians or Jews worshipped. So these Assyrians, these idol worshipers, they begin to intermarry with some of the Jews, and they begin leading these Jewish people now off into idolatry, and this is happening in Samaria, and their descendants were called Samaritans, and their worship was compromised, and it's why in the Gospels, Jews hated the Samaritans. So these are the people that are coming to Israel's leaders in Ezra chapter 4, saying, we worship your God. Let us help you build the temple. But, the, but Israel's leaders, they are wise and they're discerning, and they reject that help And they're saying, we'll have nothing to do with you in helping us build this temple. We really have to give credit to these Jewish these, the leaders of Israel for having the insight to see through their motives and having the wisdom to do that. It'd be really tempting for the Israelites to allow these idolaters to help build the temple But that would have been spiritual compromise. That would have compromised their worship as a nation. One writer says it like this. Imagine a battalion fighting to plant their flag on the hilltop. If they betray everything the flag stands for in the fight to the top of the hill, then what have they accomplished when they plant that flag? If they adopt all the practices of their enemies in their desperation to win the battle, then have they really defeated their enemies? This is what's at stake in Ezra chapter 4. If Israel allows these adversaries to build the temple, they might as well not build it at all. I think we face similar challenges today. We are always, the, the church, the people of God, are always tempted towards unholy alliances, whether it's corporately or whether it's personally. or Or some other cause becomes more important to us than worshiping God. I think of some examples like, Uh, false teachers or corrupt leaders or churches dividing from within or fearing the culture more than we fear God or refusing to call certain things sin. There's all kinds of examples I can think of ways in which we are tempted towards unholy alliances in the way that Israel is tempted here in this moment. I love what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, opposition to the work of God often comes from those claiming to be the people of God. You know, sometimes the the greatest opposition comes from the inside, or at least those who claim to be on the inside. And that's what's happening here. In this story, those who claim to worship God, they offer their help, but their real goal is to oppose the work of God and to frustrate the project. And we see this play out in verse 4 of Ezra chapter 4. It says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there it is. That's their real intent. This is why they wanted to offer help. They didn't really want to help. They wanted to frustrate things from the inside. So they wanted to, they wanted to cozy up to these israelite leaders and 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 befriend them and offer the help but their real goal was to to discourage to make them afraid to frustrate their purposes so they dropped the charade and now they're openly working against those that are trying to build the temple and this opposition lasts for 20 years this goes on for a long time now remember in in verses 6 to 23 that shifts to now a future time in Israel's history. And the reason the writer writer does this is he wants to show us that, that God's people have always experienced opposition. So whether it's in rebuilding the temple or rebuilding Jerusalem, or even today in building God's kingdom, God's people have always experienced opposition. And so the writer here at Ezra chapter four is saying, the people of Israel were pushed around when they, Tried to rebuild the temple. And, and by the way, they were pushed around later when they, were, when they tried to rebuild the wall. But now let's go back and talk about the temple. That's the flow of this, of Ezra chapter 4. Look at verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So remember, right here, the writer flashes forward to the future. Future time, future king, uh, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, this is the man who was married to Esther in the book of Esther, and there was this time when the enemies of Israel wrote this letter to the king at that time, making accusations against Israel, and the writer is linking this future event to the one that's mentioned back in verses 1 through 5, and that Israel has always had opposition against her. Then he flashes forward even further to another time, another king, Artaxerxes I, and we see him in verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. So before we read this letter, I want you to feel the weight of these first eight verses. These Jewish leaders, they, they held to their principles. They, they refused to compromise. They, they put their foot down. They drew a line and said, no, no, we're not going to compromise spiritually and allow these pagan idolaters to help us build the temple, and they refuse to the compromise, but, they, but from the outside, it doesn't look like God blessed them for it because they continue facing opposition for almost 100 years. You know, sometimes we expect our faithfulness to make the opposition go away. We expect... Or we think living out our faith in a certain way is going to bring immediate blessing, and it rarely does that. We see that in the life of Israel. I think we see it in our lives as well. So here's the letter these adversaries write to the king. Verse 9. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the, in the cities of Samaria, and the rest of the province beyond the river. So these leaders, they're giving their, their name, their rank trying to make sure this king knows who they are to give credibility to the request they're going to make. And they're appealing to a previous Assyrian king, this guy, Aznapar, who had sent people back to inhabit Samaria. And it's as if they're saying, this king sent people back to this land to inhabit it. That's what we've done. And so this land belongs to us. So this is why you shouldn't let Jerusalem be rebuilt. And so here's the letter In verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city, and they are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace. Now, what does that mean? Well, that was in reference to salt was like a, a, an expensive commodity. It was used kind of like money. So when they say, we eat the salt of the palace, it's like they're saying, we are under obligation to the palace. They say, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. So you can hear in in their words, you know, they're they're trying to butter him up. They they know, they're, they're trying to tap into his ego and say, you know, we don't want to have you be dishonored, O king. Therefore, we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old, that was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Okay, so now we can see their, their true character come out, their true intent come out as we read this letter they're going to attack the jews on three fronts. First they tell the king, if you let them rebuild the city, you know they're going to rebel against you, right? Oh great king. And there is some some irony here because Jerusalem had been a rebellious city and they had been a wicked city, but here's the irony. They rebelled against God. Not the king. That was the problem. They had compromised with the empire. That was why God dispersed all of them. So you can see how he, he, he takes some truth and he slants it a little bit and, in his direction. So it's not that they're going to rebel against the king. The, the, their history is that they've compromised with God. And they've compromised with the culture around them. And they've rebelled against God because they have become friends with the pagan nations around them. So that's the first thing they try to attack. The second thing they say is they warn that if if Jerusalem was rebuilt, then the king was going to lose taxes. Now, of course, if you want to get to somebody in leadership, you're going to talk about money and say, you know, they're going to take all the money. They're not going to pay their taxes. And this is simply false because the Jews did pay their taxes. In fact, later in Ezra chapter 7, you're going to see that Artaxerxes tells Ezra to not impose taxes on the Levites and all those who kept the temple. So the Jews had a history of paying their taxes. And then thirdly, they say that if, if Jerusalem is rebuilt, then the king is going to lose part of his kingdom beyond the river Euphrates. This was also a lie because only once did Israel's borders go that far, and that was during the reign of King Solomon. So after this letter is read to the king, he then sends a letter back commanding the work to cease. Pick up again in verse 21. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy, then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem, stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work on the temple stopped just two years after it began. And this pause lasted for 15 years. This goes on for a long, long time. So what is Ezra chapter four really about? I think it shows us a couple of things. It shows us that God's people will always experience opposition and be tempted towards discouragement. It also shows us that many times seasons of joy are followed by longer seasons of sadness and disappointment. Remember, Ezra 3, there was some some joy. There was some sadness in Ezra 3 as well, but there was some joy, a lot of joy in Ezra chapter 3. Then we get to chapter 4. And there's not a ton of stuff to look at in Ezra 4, the, the basic story is people try to help build the temple. They say no. Then they discourage the work. They send letters to the king. That goes through, throughout Israel's history. They show you, they, they flash forward a future time in Israel's history where that, where that happens. And then now we're back to the temple again, and you can just see how the work gets frustrated. They're discouraged. They're living in fear, and they stop the work. That's the chapter, Ezra 4. And you see how God's people when they come up against opposition and persecution, they can get discouraged. And they can often stop the work. I think of uh, C.S. Lewis' his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's an amazing book to read, but he, he's depicting this senior demon, Screwtape, who is, you know, influencing this younger demon named Wormwood, an experienced demon. And he's, they're having conversations about how to how to get at people of faith, how to get at the people of God and to tempt them. And this one statement I think is very revealing. He says, Work hard then on the disappointment, which is certainly coming to the patient, meaning the Christian, during his first few weeks as a churchman. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. You see, Satan wants us dependent on emotion. He wants us easily discouraged. Because he knows that once you and I get discouraged, we're going we're to turn inward. We're going to get distracted from the work. We're going to stop doing what God's asked us to do when we're discouraged in these seasons of time. So maybe you're a, a, a fairly new believer, new Christ follower, and, and you just thought it was going to be different. You heard stories of people that that shared their story and they just said how great it was and how amazing it was. And so you came to faith in Christ and you had this, this mountaintop experience of joy and this, this spiritual high experience. And then suddenly you realize this is a long season of dryness. I'm not sure I like this anymore. I'm not sure I want to do this. Or maybe you've been a Christ follower for a long time and and you're just, you're just tired, and you're just discouraged by, by slow progress, disappointed. For me, there's a couple things I think about when it comes to discouragement. I think of my prayer life, and I think of my parenting. I don't ever feel like I'm measuring up in those two areas of my life. You know, prayer life can be dry a lot of the time, and can just feel like I'm just going through the motions with prayer life. My parenting. I guess in my head I pictured, you know, me being a pastor and a father that I would just say all these like profound profound things to my kids. They'd soak it up like a sponge and say, Thank you, father. That's just how I pictured it playing out. But that's just not how it goes. Mostly because a lot of the time I don't feel like I know what to say. And then I got some parents out there saying what am I supposed to say to my kid? And I'm like, I don't know sometimes. And, and you can feel discouraged, and, and, and the reality doesn't match the ideal that you had in your mind as to how something might go. And you see with Israel, we see, we see long periods of time without, without divine intervention or spiritual renewal. There, there's a lot of space between some chapters and verses, and you realize there's a lot of time that passes by. In these, in these stories. And I think in these times where there's this long season of dry spells, we start getting nostalgic about the past and it causes us to grow cynical in the present. We start thinking about how things used to be for us. And we get real cynical and say, well, this isn't like that. So we start, so nostalgia can feed into our cynicism in the present. And, and you know, sometimes we can study a passage and we can see what to do. We can see examples of, Okay, I want to be like so and so, I want to follow after their example. But sometimes we read a passage and we see what not to do. This is I think one of those passages. Because what's wrong with the story? What's missing in the story? One thing is is prayer? Nobody prays. Nobody calls on God, calls on God's name to to come against this opposition. They just they just stop working. The king sends a letter and, and says, you need to stop working. And they're, and they're just like, okay, we're going to stop working now. So they allow this discouragement to, to keep them from the work. And, and let's be honest. Over the last couple of years, many of us have done the same thing. We've disconnected from the body. We've, we've pulled way back. In the body of Christ. For some, I know it's, it's for health reasons and some legitimate concerns. I get all that. But for many, it's just not about that anymore. And, and we've allowed discouragement or disappointment to keep us from the work. And listen, God doesn't want us being kept from the work. God didn't want the work to cease. He doesn't want the work to stop. And, and so why are we discouraged? Might it be that that God has a purpose for us in the discouragement? And you might ask, how can that be? And I think this says it well. God uses discouragement to reshape us but not destroy us. You see, discouragement is a form of suffering. Now, it's not like the cataclysmic kind necessarily, And we know the cataclysmic stuff, the big stuff, the, you know, you get a disease, someone else gets a disease, or there's something that happens that's just really big, and that's when you and I tend to run to God, because we're desperate, but discouragement is just more subtle. It it just kind of, just kind of gnaws at you. Not even sure it's there, but it's there, and and it's something kind of in the middle You can't put your finger on it, but but you know it's there. And so what, we acknowledge, at least on some level, how God might use the cataclysmic suffering in our lives. We know that. But how might God use discouragement in our lives? I think he does it this way. In the discouragement, maybe God allows it to bring about a dependence upon him. Because in the discouragement, in the disappointment, that's when I need him. That's when I can express my need for him in the day in, day out. And listen, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm tempted not to. You're tempted not to. We all are. But I believe God wants us to stay engaged in those kinds of seasons because he's still doing the work that he wants us to join in on. We also see in Ezra chapter 4 that the good guys don't always win. Whenever you go and watch a movie, you have an expectation of something. You walk into the film and you expect something about that film. Whether it's the, the person or the people in the film, you expect something to happen and you expect good to win in some capacity. And if it doesn't, you walk out angry. And, and you go tell your friends, don't see that film, it's awful, it ended horribly, it wasn't what I wanted. I think of the 2007 film, No Country for Old Men. Now listen, if you haven't seen it, it you had 15 years, okay, so I'm going to spoil it for you, um, but the whole movie, you're waiting for the villain, Anton Chigurh. You're just waiting for him to get his due. You're just waiting for it to happen. And for two and a half hours, you're like, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to happen right here. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then it never happens. And, and evil just seems to win. And, and, and I walked out angry about that film. It's not supposed to end like that. And for the believer, life can seem like that. In the New Testament, the words of Jesus, Paul, and others, they imply that when we follow Christ, opposition is going to increase. It's not even believer unbeliever. It's like when you follow Christ, opposition is going to increase. How's that for a selling point? And but that's what Jesus, that's what Paul says. And you might ask, well, well, how does that help us? Well, I think it adjusts our expectations, right? You see, there's two dangers we can fall into. Finding persecution everywhere or believing it's nowhere. You know, we don't turn a blind eye to it and, and say, well, it doesn't exist. Of course it exists. But we also don't choose to see it everywhere. You know, sometimes we as Christians think, well, you know, everyone's out to get us. Everyone's just picking on us. It reminds me when I reminds me when I see an NFL team commit tons of penalties and the ref calls it and the players complain, you know, the refs hate us, they're conspiring against us. Now listen, I am not talking about any team in particular because I promised myself I would not make fun of the Cowboys in this sermon. So I'm not going to do that today. But sometimes I think we do that, don't we? We we see persecution everywhere. Like, they're, they're picking on us. They're, they're against us. They're conspiring against us, believing everyone is out to get us. And listen, if you think everyone is out to get you, then everyone will be out to get you. And you'll live your life like that. So we don't see it everywhere, but we also don't see it nowhere. We know it exists. We acknowledge it exists. The God's people throughout time, all places have experienced a great opposition. From our perspective, the good guys don't always win, but from God's perspective, we can say, the good guys don't always win, but they, all, but they never ultimately lose. So how is that true? So where do we see that bearing out in life? We see it all over the Bible. You know, God always turns the page on injustice. Now, you and I, we don't, know, we don't know when or how, but God always turns the page on injustice. You see, there's these, this broad spectrum of stories in the Bible where sometimes God just shows up and, and, and things get solved quickly. I think of uh, in the book of Daniel, there's these three guys that go into a fiery furnace and then they're saved immediately and they're unharmed. So God shows up right there in that moment. But there's other examples where it takes a while. I think of Joseph going into prison for unjustly for years and years and years. He finally gets out. I mean, he does see some justice happening in his own life. Hebrews 11 speaks of many experiencing disappointment. Verse 13 in Hebrews 11 says, Those, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Many died disappointed and discouraged. There's one amazing example in the story of Moses. Did anyone experience more disappointment and discouragement than Moses in the Old Testament? I, don't, I can't think of any, anyone. He, he's, he's been called by God to lead his people from Egypt to the promised land. And the whole way, they're, they're complaining and complaining about his leadership, complaining, we want to go back to Egypt. They're committing idolatry right there in the desert. And after all they had seen and all of his leadership, Moses had to be disappointed and discouraged. He ends up sinning against God, Moses does. And God says, okay, now you can't go in the promised land. You're going you're to die in the desert. And now, Moses, you, you, you can't go in the promised land. But if you go to the Gospels, during that amazing transfiguration experience up on that mountaintop, there is Jesus and there is Elijah and there's who else? There's Moses. And where's all that happening? It's happening inside the promised land. He's still got to see it. He still got to see the promised land. You see, God always turns the page on injustice, but we don't know how, And we don't know when. I love what Erwin McManus says. He says, we should not be surprised that a lifelong journey with God might bring us suffering and hardship. If the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that sometimes God comes through after we've been killed. God, we thank you for your word, for how your word speaks to us right where we sit. God, we thank you for how you show us, even like Ezra 4, a chapter that just looks like discouragement and opposition and people not doing much of anything, yet somehow you want to speak to us in that. Somehow you're you're speaking to us right now in whatever areas we are discouraged in, whatever ways in which we are being opposed as it relates to your kingdom and your gospel And yet you are calling us to continue the work. Now, not in a self-righteous way, in an arrogant way, but humble, but confident. Confident that you're going to complete the work that you started in us and through us. And we praise you for that, and we thank you for that. We pray this in your name. Amen.